Well, good morning once again. For those of you who uh, are not familiar with me, my name is Walter Martinez. I pastor both the Central and Choctaw Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, but I'm also the family coordinator for the Oklahoma Conference, so that means I get a chance to be able to go and speak at different churches. And it's been a while since I've been with you. I think it's been over three years. That was the last time my wife and I had a chance to be here and to worship with you and to share uh, a wonderful family uh, seminar. So um, I'll just say that I love, I love your building. I love your pastor, Pastor TJ. We had a chance to be able to talk when I first moved from Adventist Fellowship in Tulsa here to Oklahoma City. And uh, we went out to eat together um, to that place that has like the chocolate pinata. What's that place called? Uncle, Uncle Julio's. You guys ever had the chocolate pinata? It's amazing. Of course, you can't have it during COVID, so sorry. That, that was not nice of me to bring that up. But uh, yeah, we, we, we spent some time talking together, praying together, and there was a goal that we set over a year ago, and that goal was that uh, my church, you guys here at Edmond, and uh, hopefully a couple, a couple other churches in the area, Seventh-day Adventist churches, could come together and do something for our community, for communities. In fact, we had a couple of meetings. We brought two more pastors on board. We talked to a lady who's connected with our state capital and our education system. And the ball was getting rolling until what happened, church family? COVID, right? COVID came and pretty much destroyed all of that, all the planning, all the, 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 the excitement of being able to go into it. And, um, well, you know what it's like because it affected you. It affected your home life, your world. It rocked all of us. For us as pastors, speaking of myself and Pastor TJ, um, it left us confused and a little bit, dare I say, broken, uncertain. Um, yes, we're the ones who stand behind the pulpit and we speak the word of God and we, we bring understanding and some clarity to it, but it's hard to do that from Sabbath to Sabbath when we ourselves are uncertain and, and uncomfortable because our own world has been rocked because, after all, we're only human. All of us, of course, have had to pick up the pieces to count our losses, and, and hopefully we've had the opportunity to let those losses go because, as you know, if you don't, if you're still trying to hold on to the way things were, you're going to carry resentment and pain and hurt with you. So it's, it's not been easy trying to venture from what was to what now is. In fact, Seventh-day Adventist churches across Oklahoma, as our conference was letting us know, and as I was talking with other of my colleagues, we, we have splits in our churches over the issue of masks. Um, our members are divided over where people stand on social injustice, racism, political parties, whether COVID is a real threat or not, whether you should get the vaccine or not. And I think deep down inside of all of us, there's a, a prayer that we're just silently praying to ourselves that we can get back to just some kind of normal. Now, I don't want to diminish any of this by what I'm about to say next, because I know it's hard, and I know that we're going through a lot of difficult things. But church family, I, I want to propose to you that perhaps our perspective in all of this 
needs some adjustment. Perhaps God is inviting us to look past like the immediate craziness that we see right here in front of us or to look beyond the chaos that's around you, to look for something deeper, something greater, to a calling that supersedes all of that. I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that TJ and I had a chance to, to meet over a year ago to sit down and talk and to brainstorm the idea of doing something for our communities um, to allow our church family the exposure in our community to get out and do something because I do believe that Jesus is coming soon and people need to hear about him. So that decision that we made back then, um, I believe that TJ and I are not willing to let that go. So for that reason, today we begin a journey, one that will carry you to make a decision that will present you with a challenge, because a sermon without a challenge isn't really much of a sermon, so you're going to get challenged, to shift your perspective to decide, will you keep on living the life that you're currently living, because let's be honest, how's that going for you, or will you shift and commit to something more, something deeper? Today, I'm privileged to launch you into a new sermon series, one that Pastor TJ, as you saw on the screen, will be carrying on in February, one committed to your growth and your involvement here in this church and in your community. I'll let him, of course, talk about that. He's introduced the title to you, so I'm not going to steal his thunder. But for today, today's sermon title, it's none other than it's going to cost you, because uh Surprise, I forgot to mention that uh, it's not going to be easy. (laughs) But let's be honest, what do you have to lose in going on this journey with God? So do me a favor, turn to the person next to you. It can be even across from you a little bit if they're not right next to you. But turn to the person next to you. Okay, you guys are turning. This is good. And repeat after me. God's calling. Ooh, that was weak. Let's try again. Turn to the person next to you. God's calling. Doesn't end with a decision to believe. That's pretty good. Let me repeat that again. You don't have to repeat it. I'm just going to say it out loud. God's calling doesn't end with a decision to believe. Now continue. It's reborn. Rex, are you saying it's reborn? I saw you whispering, but you need to say it out loud. It's reborn. Very good. With a commitment to follow. So here's what it looks like. God's calling doesn't end with a decision to believe. It's reborn with a commitment to follow. So what in the world does that mean? Let's find out. But first, if you'd bow your heads with me, let's pray one more time and ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so very much for the challenge, the challenge to follow you. And Father, as we go into your word to read about that challenge, I'm simply asking that you would please speak right into our, right into our hearts, right into our souls that we might leave today understanding that you're calling us to something much deeper. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And as you're doing that, I want to remind you of the scripture reading that my friend Grant read for us earlier. The scripture reading verse was taken from John 2. So as you're turning to John 3, I'm going to put just this verse on the screen, but I want you to have your Bibles with you because I'm going to be telling you a story, one that you're probably familiar with, 
but I'd like for you to have your Bible open so you can reference it as I'm talking about it. But as we begin, just to set the stage, Jesus has walked into the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and he has just decimated all of these different tables where they had money and they were exchanging funds and he was tipping over things right and left, clearing the temple. Uh, Last week, I was talking about the structure of the temple. And while I don't have as much time to unpack it for you, just imagine this massive courtyard. This was where the Gentiles could come and worship. You had different layers that you would walk into. And the deeper you got, the more significant and solemn, and the less people could go into those areas. The biggest area was this temple court of the Gentiles. And this is, interestingly enough, where they put all of these different animals to be sold and money to be exchanged, and it was loud and it was noisy. And if you were a Gentile, this is where you got to worship. And I'm sure Jesus walked in there and had just had had enough. There's a poor Gentile person trying to pray and someone else is trying to move him out of the way so that he can get his sheep to go for the sacrifice. And I mean, you can't worship like that, right? Loud, noisy, smelly. So Jesus just takes tables and starts tossing them over. And people are wondering what's going on. And the religious leaders are terrified. They don't know what to do about this. They all kind of just watch in shock. Well, one person in particular is paying attention. You see, he's been listening to the stories about Jesus. Perhaps he's even heard him speak and his heart's been pricked. And he's wondering, who is this guy? And he sees that happen and he thinks to himself, finally, someone's doing something about all the corruption here in God's church. So we come to chapter three. And in chapter three, I'm sorry, in verse two, at the, the end of chapter two, let me rephrase that. At the end of chapter two, John says something really, really important for us before we jump into John three. And he says this. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people believed in his name because they saw what church? It's all right for you to speak. They saw what? miraculous signs. They believed because they saw, right? Jesus is turning over tables. He's kicking out money changers. He's doing all this stuff. They believed because they saw. But watch what John says in the last verse of chapter two. He said, he did not need anyone to testify about man for he knew what church? He knew what was in man. What does that mean? See, John is laying down this, this, this foreshadowing. He's allowing for Jesus to, to step into the story along with another character that we read about here in John chapter three. So hopefully you're there and you can just kind of skim over while I start talking about this story. Nicodemus was a man who was a very high reputation. He was cream of the crop when it came to the Pharisees. And back then, the Pharisees held a very, very important position in their society because these religious leaders basically uh, provided all the rules and all the structure for the religious system in Jesus's day. You have to understand that they, they had their roots or their beginnings during a time when Jerusalem was suffering, when the city of God was broken. In fact, a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came in and sacrificed some things on the altar of God, and God did absolutely nothing about it. Because at this point, God's presence had been removed from the sanctuary, and it had just left this huge stain on not just the church, but on the people as a whole. So this group rose up 
to protect God's law, to protect his rules, to protect who he was. And they began instilling all of these specific things, these deeds that people had to do so that they hoped would win God back into their lives and God's presence would be back. Hundreds of years later, we come to Jesus's day and the religious leaders have done so much. The Pharisees have put so many rules into place and so many things into place. They were proud of them. And the ones who could carry them out to the fullest were the cream of the crop. Nicodemus is one of those people. And what I find interesting is in John chapter three, verse one, it says, now a certain man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at what time, church family? He came at night under the cover of darkness. Imagine, imagine this, this, this very important man sneaking around in the dark, right? Usually when you hear about someone who does that, it's because they're gonna do something bad. They don't want to get caught. They don't want anyone to see what they're doing. They're hiding. So Nicodemus is going under cover of darkness, but he's actually not doing something bad, per se, morally. But if he were to get caught by his colleagues, right? If he were to get caught by the people with just as high position as he was, he would he was risking everything to do something like this. You see, he wanted to go see Jesus. And Jesus is like, he's a troublemaker. He's a person that people don't want to associate with in the religious system because he's kind of tearing their whole system apart, brick by brick. And, um, and they're, they're looking for ways to get rid of him. But Nicodemus is looking for a way to just talk to him because his heart has just been pricked. He just wants to know what's going on. Why, why is Jesus doing this? Could could this guy actually be the Messiah? The one that we're looking forward to? Because you have, you have to realize back then, their idea of the Messiah was far different than what we think of when we read about Jesus, Christ, anointed one. They were thinking king. They were thinking person who's gonna not overthrow tables, but overthrow kingdoms and take over the Romans and become an empire that, you know, is unequaled by anybody else. But this Jesus, he's he's different. So Nicodemus comes at nighttime and and his heart's beating, right? Because he doesn't want to get caught. I love a book. If if you haven't read it, write this down. It's called The Desire of Ages. Powerful book. Powerful book on the life of Jesus. In the book... um, the author describes that Nicodemus makes his way to the Mount of Olives because that's where Jesus would usually go to, to, to retreat. That was his wilderness. That was his Eremos, his quiet spot where he would just spend time with God. So there he goes at nighttime to just commune with God and he can hear the branches kind of breaking and leaves crumpling and he looks up and Jesus looks up and he sees this man, this respectable man. And, and, and Nicodemus is kind of caught off guard as their eyes meet each other. And there in the candlelight, Jesus invites Nicodemus to sit down. And as they sit down together, Nicodemus immediately begins with this explanation. Rabbi, verse 2, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Remember the foreshadowing from John chapter two? People believe because of the miraculous signs. 
But Nicodemus does something. Not only is he covered in the darkness of night, but he covers himself up a little bit more. Just to protect himself, he says, Rabbi. He doesn't call him Messiah. He doesn't call him Lord. He calls him mere teacher. Not even on the same level as Nicodemus. Just just a teacher, a rabbi. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you have power from God. But you see, Jesus already knows hearts. And he already knows where Nicodemus is, is coming with all of this. And, and, I, and I have to wonder if, if maybe Jesus was actually praying there in that moment before Nicodemus showed up and he was praying for that conversation that they were gonna have. But here comes Nicodemus. They sit down, they have the conversation, they begin the conversation. Nicodemus is still hiding himself a little bit. He's still unsure. He doesn't know if this is really the Messiah. He wants to believe, but he's not sure. And, and so the conversation kicks off with a nice little teacher. You're, you're, we know that you're doing good things. You've got to have some of God's power behind you to do these things. And then it's Jesus' turn to talk. And, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't mince with words. Jesus cuts right to the soul. And he tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you, oh, religious, pious, he doesn't use these words, but he's speaking and he's, he's meaning these things. You who consider yourself to be in the kingdom already, unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Like talk about just putting someone off guard, right? This is a religious leader. You do not talk to people like that who have those kinds of positions, but Jesus isn't gonna mince around with words. He tells him straight up, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And what I find fascinating is that that word born again, that combination of words, yes, you're gonna read that in your English translation as born again. And you'll see it in numerous translations, but recently, finally, people have begun to acknowledge that it has a double meaning. The expression born again doesn't just simply mean being born in the terms, terminology that Nicodemus is going to misunderstand here in just a second, but it means from somewhere. And the second meaning to that combination of words is from above, which is really what Nicodemus is wanting to find out. Is Jesus just another teacher or is he from above? So Jesus says, unless you're born from above, you will not be able to enter the kingdom of God. Of course, Nicodemus doesn't understand. So he says, "Uh, how can I be born again? How can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus continues and he tells him, uh, he begins to explain the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and as he begins to explain all of that, how the Spirit moves like the wind and you don't know if it's coming from the left or the right, how it moves through you. He's pointing Nicodemus little by little to him and Nicodemus's question. He's pointing, he's pointing Nicodemus to Jesus, to himself, but he's also helping Nicodemus process things that will help him come to a decision. If you're a parent, you understand that helping your child make decisions is not easy. There have been times where I've explained things I thought so intricately, so well. You know, I could be telling my son, you want to save up your money because you want to be able to buy something that's a little more expensive than this little candy bar. If you just save up this week, plus next week and the next week, you're going to have enough for this nice car. And after I've explained the whole thing, what do you think Ethan wants? 
course he wants the candy bar. It's right there. It's in front of him. You can get it now. Why wait for a car? I'll just ask dad for the car next week. <laughs> Something I need to think about. <laughs> so as Jesus is walking Nicodemus through this, he's so patient with him. And I just want to pause for a moment to reflect on the fact that he's so patient with us, isn't he? Because we're the same way, just like our children that we're trying to teach. It takes us time to process things. So as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and explaining these things to him, Nicodemus then, then does something really interesting. He, he, he's caught off guard. And so he says in verse 9, how can these things be? He kind of did the same thing when he used the expression, how can I be born again? How can I enter my mother's womb? He deflects. He deflects. An example, you're sitting, guys, young guys, you're on your first date, and you're sitting across from your beautiful date, and you're enjoying this opportunity. You're looking forward to it. It's been months of preparation to even ask the question, to go out on the date. Now you're on the date, and you're struggling for the words to say, and the girl across from you says, you're kind of cute, I like you, right? And you're in the middle of a conversation about the day and the weather or whatnot, and then she says, you're cute, I like you. And then you have nothing to say. Your face is red, you're, you're uncertain of yourself, you're, 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 you're wondering if maybe there's something in your teeth, and, 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 and she said, I'm cute, and, and your heart's pumping, and you, you can't think. And so, and so you, uh, you say something dumb. Because you can't think. It's like, oh, the food's really good, isn't it? Um, how do you like your food? Or if you're brave enough, I think you're kind of cute too. But that rarely ever happens because we deflect. When we're caught off guard, we deflect. And Nicodemus deflects. He, he's caught off guard. Jesus is cutting right to his heart. He's speaking right to him. And he's like, I don't understand. I don't think you can be born again. And so Jesus then continues to talk. And he says, how can this be? Jesus is so patient. He's so patient. And I'm so thankful he's patient. Because how many times has Jesus talked to me and revealed things in my life that I'm reading that Bible verse for that morning and I'm thinking of the church member that was mean to me or I'm thinking of that person that did something to my family or I'm thinking of something that, that I just really want to say to someone to help them understand what God, God's word says. And then God says, no, that's not for them. That's for you. This is for you right now, Walter. And then I deflect. And I say, well, God, I'm busy right now. It was nice talking to you this morning. I got a jet. I got to go. Or that awkward moment when, when, I'm in the middle of my study and somebody in the house wakes up and I'm like, oh, that means it's time to go. Sorry, God, we'll continue this later. But God is so patient, so, so patient. Jesus isn't done talking to Nicodemus about the issue at hand, even though Nicodemus deflects. And so after he says, how can this be, et cetera, et cetera, Jesus calls him back by saying, don't be amazed. Don't be amazed. You have to be born from above. Again, people read that and they think, oh, born again. He's just talking about being born again. No, no, no. He's lifting Nicodemus' eyes past the stuff he sees on earth 
past everything that he's accomplished in his life, past all the craziness of the Romans and the, the centurions and everything that's happening in his world. And he's wanting him to see deeper, wanting him to go deeper. And so he says, he uses the word above again. In fact, if you read this chapter through, you'll see the born again phrase over three times. It's meaningful. Jesus is calling him back to attention. But ultimately, he wants him to make a decision. And so, go to the next one here. There we go. And so he's bringing him to a place. Here we go. To something that's really, really near and dear to Nicodemus's heart. And to many of us as Christians, by the way, just pause for a second. This, this story, this reflection that John is writing about is a reflection for us as a church. It's not a reflection for people who don't believe. This is a reflection for those people who are sitting in church, who have at least made the decision to come to church to find out more about God and to be on that journey with him. There's three levels. One, you're learning about him or you, you're getting to know him pretty well or you've, you're seasoned and you've been with him. You could be any of those three in this sermon, this story applies to you. So if you're tempted to think, oh, well, that's, that's for people that aren't in the church. No, there are plenty of stories for people that aren't in the church, but this is for those who are sitting here today or watching online. Those of you who have made the decision to be here, Jesus is speaking to a learned man and he's speaking in that context and this man still has to make a decision. So he talks to him about the law of God. And in the law of God, there's a story in Moses. He builds this brass serpent. You guys remember this story? Puts it on a pole. What are the people supposed to do in order to be saved from the snake bites that they're having all over camp? They look to the pole, right? They look to the serpent. And a lot of people probably questioned, they probably wondered, what in the world? We're asking Moses to pray to God to save us and he's building this bronze snake and now he's telling us that we have to look at the snake in order to be saved. Even I still have a problem with that because the snake is synonymous with other things in scripture. So what is God doing telling people to look at this pole with a snake on it? But the key is what God was doing in that moment, what he was, what he was wanting from his people was his attend, what's their attention to make a decision to believe. And sure enough, every single person that looked at that pole and saw the snake and believed that they would be healed were healed. And everyone who looked at that pole and that snake and didn't believe, they died. And so as Jesus is unpacking this, Nicodemus, I'm sure, is wondering, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, you're taking me all over the place from up above to down below to this snake in the Old Testament. And then Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man, and he's speaking of himself, will be lifted up. And that when everyone looks to him and believes, they will be saved. And now Nicodemus is realizing Jesus is getting to a particular point. Repeat John 3.16 with me, if you can, please. And you may say it in a totally different translation, and that's okay. But at the count of three, I want all of us to repeat the words, for God so loved the world. Okay, ready? One, two, three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. It's the same story. Look to the pole. Look to Christ upon the tree. Believe in your heart and you will be saved. So Nicodemus is listening because none of this stuff has happened yet. It's still three years into the future. But he's processing. He is a religious man who has a whole lot of money and status in the community, well-respected, but in the darkness of night, he doesn't want to lose any of that. And yet Jesus is calling him out and telling him, you've got to make a decision. Got to make a decision. Are you going to believe in me as just a teacher? Or are you going to believe in me as the son of God, the Messiah? Because they both have totally different connotations. Sure, Nicodemus, you could believe as me as just a teacher and go about your everyday life, go back to your establishment, hang out with the people that you hang out with, joke, do the things that they do, live the life that they do. Deep down inside, you know that there could be more, but you're just going to keep doing life the same way you used to do. Or you could make a decision to step out and live different because of a belief in someone who opposes everything that you're currently living. I, I sometimes wonder if we as Christians lose that perspective as we as Seventh-day Adventists lose that perspective, you know, we had a, a title back in the day, the Peculiar People. And we used to pride ourselves with that title because it, it was like, oh, we're different. We're unique. We're special. But there's more meaning to that. We're not peculiar because of the things we eat or the things that we say. We're peculiar because of the God we serve and how he shines through us. And this is where the story this is where most people stop. This is where most part of Christianity says, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and then they finish it off, and they say, all you have to do is believe. Remember what the bottom line was? I don't think if did I put it up there. No, I didn't. The bottom line was the idea that, that um, our decision to believe in Jesus isn't the end. It's not the end. There's more still. So I don't know if you've ever traveled in this latter section of John 3, but I want to take you there in the brief moments that we have left. And I want to unpack for you something that perhaps you've never seen before. I haven't seen it, not until this week. But it's in that unpacking that suddenly my heart began to just race because I began to realize there's more. Yes, I've believed in Jesus, the Lord and my Savior. Yes, I believe that he gives me eternal life and salvation. But there's more. You say, well, how much more could there be? Life more, abundant more. Watch. John 2.23, remember, it says, Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs he was doing. It's the only reason they believed in him. He did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what was in man. Keep that in mind. Thank you again, Grant, for reading that for us. This is key. It's important because what he's going to do now is he's going to unpack that Nicodemus and us today need to go deeper. Turn your Bible to John 3, verse 19. 
321. I'm going to read it one time through, then we're going to put it on the screen, and we're going to unpack it. Now, this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, so that their deeds will not be exposed. Verse 21. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done. I heard someone yawn, and I did the same thing this week when I was studying this verse because I was like, what does it mean? Oh, my goodness. I went over and over and over, and I was praying and praying. What does it mean? What does it mean? And as I continued going through it, I had to experience some things in my week. I had a crazy week, church family. Crazy week. Back last night, I was fatigued. I was feeling horrible. I was like, I texted Chris. I was like, where are you, Chris? I was like, Chris, you better have a backup plan, man, because I don't know what's going on with me right now. Um, don't worry, I don't have COVID. So I don't want to scare anybody. But anyhow, I was tested earlier, negative, we're good. So so the thing was, I don't know what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and then, like, as I continued to study, it came together. And this is what I want to share with you as we close today. I think it's... Hopefully it's good for you too, but it was awesome for me. Jesus begins by saying, the light has come into the world. Who is the light, church family? Specifically who? Jesus, very good. Jesus comes into the world. You read that in John chapter one. John starts off with that. He tells us that the light of the world has come. So Jesus is the light. He's come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because of what? Because of their what? Because of their deeds. Now, he by saying deeds, and you have to understand this, church family, because remember, speaking to the church, he's not speaking to people of the world. People of the world live in darkness for different reasons. People of the church live in darkness because of their deeds. He said, what does that mean, Pastor Walter? So you go to church. You pay your faithful tithe. You give your offering. You help old ladies across the street. You know, you do all these wonderful things. Those are your deeds. Why do you do them? Well, maybe you do them because you were told to do them. Maybe you do them because you think they're good things. Hopefully you don't do them to please God, as God is some person upstairs that's going to strike you dead if you don't do something good, because that's not what the scripture teaches. But what Nicodemus is about to learn is that all of his deeds, all of his deeds, by the way, he's done so many deeds. He's you know, cream of the crop, right? That's how he got there, by doing all of these things. He's about to learn, as Jesus is speaking, that those deeds are worthless. All of those rules and regulations and things that he followed, they're worthless if done for the wrong reason. And so as Jesus unpacks this, he's saying, Nicodemus, you came in the darkness of night, but you don't realize that you're going to leave here in the darkness of night if you don't make a decision. Because everything that you do in life, everything that you do in life is either done for yourself or done for God. Done by yourself or done with God. And this is a message for the church. You and I, we come here today, we came here just to have, you know, hopefully good fellowship and a good message. We didn't realize that we'd be challenged on having to make a decision to follow Jesus. But on top of that, hold on. So you're saying it's not just enough to believe in Jesus? I have to live with him too? 
Yeah. Watch. Verse 21. Last one was verse 19. I apologize. This is verse 20. For everyone who does evil does what, church? Hates the light and does not come from the come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When you come to the light, you're exposed, right? So why not just continue doing the things that you're doing? It's like me sitting at my Bible, reading in the morning, reading and saying, ooh, that verse is good for so-and-so. Or this verse applies to, hmm, I got to tell my mom to get off my back on taking my supplements because God said that I need to, you know, whatever it may be. If you're watching, mom, I'm sorry, I took my supplements. All right. So um, it could be a number of things that, that, that you're thinking apply to someone else, but God is saying, I, I want you to live this. I want you to do this. So when God says, I want you to call your sister and make amends. I want you to forgive your boss for what he said to you. I want you to be able to reconcile your finances and start giving back to me what belongs to me. I want, and these challenges come, right? And you think, oh man, how is this going to work? I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me with your children who are not in church. I want you to stop calling them and begging them to come back to church and instead get on your knees and pray for them and not stop praying for them until they come to church. Let me do the work. Let me do the heavy lifting. It's, it's the doctor. Uh, it's, it's getting the phone call from the doctor who says that you have a terminal disease and you only have so many days to live. And, and, and then God's saying, I want you to trust me with those days that you have left. These are those moments in life where God interrupts us and we begin to question and we begin to wonder. It's the bully at school. It's the constant nagging from people in your life. And God says, I want you to keep on keeping on. I'm with you. You're going to have to trust me step by step. Many of us, however, if this verse is correct, those of us in the church, even those of us in the church, look at that verse and we say, no, I'm good. I tried God's way and it was painful. I'm going to keep living my way and do my thing and see how that works out for me. And I keep living out my deeds, doing the same thing over and over because I'm afraid, I'm afraid to step into the light. The last verse that Jesus says is this, and I love that he finishes with this because this is hopeful and it gives you courage and peace. But those who love the truth, who is the truth, church family? You guys not know? Who's the church? I mean, who's the truth? Jesus, very good. Jesus, also found in John, um, John chapter eight. He's the truth. So he says, but those who love the truth, those who love Jesus will come out into the light and welcome its exposure for the light will reveal that their fruitful works were produced by who? So here's the opposite. So let's say I do my own thing and I'm doing my religious deeds and I'm a good pastor in front of everybody else and I you know, preach good sermons and I do all these different things and, and I'm satisfied, sort of, I'm not really, but I'm, I'm satisfied in the eyes of everybody else with everything that I'm doing good and I lead myself or deceive myself to think that even I'm good with God. But here's God saying, no, 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 I want so much more from you, Walter. I want, I want to give you life abundant you got to stop playing your little games. Come with me. I've got something so much better. There's another person who might say, well, okay, God, I'm ready to make a decision to believe in you. And, and God says, okay, let's go. Let's continue. He says, okay, but, but only in a few things. We'll try a few things out. And if, and if it hurts too much, I'm going back to my old way of life. Then there's a third group that says, I, I'm willing to trust you completely 
I'm sold out. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. And so that journey takes them through hardship and through pain and through suffering, but it leads to something so beautiful. And when they look back on their life, they begin to think, how in the world were so many people impacted by my life when I was just living day to day to day to day? When I got in that car accident and people found out and I had peace and my whole family was saved and everything was okay, and I talked to them, they, they, they questioned, how could you have so much peace when, 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 you know, I found out people have had COVID and they went through COVID and they were just like on fire for God, ministering to other people who are worried and concerned about them. It's like, how do these individuals have such a powerful peace about them when they're going through these things? And, and what they begin to realize is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus that night. When you, when you give up to God and when you commit to him, it doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect, but it means that you will look back and you will see that every good thing that ever came out of that was because of your relationship with him. What does all of this mean? Let's, let's bring in the appeal. Let's bring in the, the application. Because church family, we got a whole day of hanging out with God ahead of us. So I want to keep you from that. <laughs> There's three kinds of people here this morning. Like Nicodemus, all of us have to make a decision. Perhaps some of you who are watching online, you've never given your heart to God. You're still exploring. You're still wanting to know if this is something that's, that's for real. So you stumbled here to Edmond Seventh-day Adventist Church. You've been watching Pastor TJ, and you've been watching the different things that have been happening here, and, and, and you're intrigued, but you haven't made that decision yet. Well, your challenge is to make a decision for Christ. Your challenge is to look beyond the story of scripture and simply say, it's a good fantasy story. And to say, no, I want to believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You've got people here at Edmund Seventh-day Adventist Church who will love on you and who will walk with you through that journey. But you have to make that decision. You have to pick up the phone and call Pastor TJ or one of the elders and make that connection. So we'll be praying for you. There's other people perhaps here in the sanctuary this morning. You fit into the second group. And that is those of you who have made the decision for Christ. You've been baptized. You keep coming back. But your life is the same. Not much has changed. Well, granted, you're vegan now, right? No? Vegetarian. Okay, you eat meat every now and then, but you're pretty good. Your health's pretty good. And you go to church on Saturday, so that counts for something. And you pay a faithful tithe. And uh, everybody smiles at church. And if you brought your dog, even your dog would smile too. So, you know, something good happening there. The challenge for you, though, is the same challenge as Nicodemus, to go deeper. Don't be satisfied with simply coming to church and calling it enough. Go deeper. Spend more time with God. Pastor TJ is going to unpack that in his sermon series. So don't worry. This is just an introduction. But I'm challenging you to make a commitment to spend more time than you currently are doing with God, to grow with him. And there's a third group. The third group are those of you who have not only made the decision, but you have committed yourselves to following God no matter what the cost is. And I resonate with you. 
Because as you look at the world around you, I know my heart cries for it too. Lord, please come soon. How much more of this are we going to have to deal with? Our family members are dying. I've had four family members die thanks to COVID this year, last year. And I've had numerous friends who've been infected. This is not fun watching people that we love die, experiencing pain and the sorrow, not even being able to say goodbye because of travel restrictions and all sorts of things, funeral restrictions. And so we recognize what it means to be committed and that it doesn't feel fun when you experience pain and loss and hurt and heartbreak. But I promise you this, that Jesus didn't intend for the wealth the prosperity necessarily to happen here on earth for us to have that happiness and joy. He simply asked for us to trust him and follow him deeper. I love epilogues. Epilogues come at the end of the story. They kind of give you the tail end, if you will, the extra little piece that maybe, maybe if it's a bad epilogue, then it's not so good. But <laughs> if, if you're able to, you can journey and hear just a little bit more of the story. And wouldn't you know it, there's an epilogue to Nicodemus's story. We see him there in chapter three, and then we kind of catch glimpses of him throughout John. He stands up for Jesus a couple of times. He gets made fun of. He gets put down. And then you see him at the cross, and he's there. There's only two guys there, and they bring down Jesus off the cross, and he's the one who just covers him with spices and ointments. He just like expensive stuff. He just pours his money into just taking care of Jesus as they bring him down off the cross. But later on, same book, Desire of Ages, I'm telling you, it's a powerful book. Uh, The author writes this. Just listen to it. It's so powerful. After the Lord's ascension, when the disciples were scattered by persecution, Nicodemus came boldly to the front. He employed his wealth in sustaining the infant church that the Jews had expected to be blotted out at the death of Christ. You get that? The religious system that he worked for was trying to destroy the church and Nicodemus was working against them with whatever funds he had left. In the time of peril, he who had been so cautious and questioning was firm as a rock, encouraging the faith of the disciples and furnishing means to carry forward the work of the gospel. Now, while this isn't on the screen, this part gets me every time. Because like I said, it's not easy. He was scorned and persecuted by those who had paid him reverence in other days. He became poor in the world's goods. Yet he faltered not in the faith which had its beginning in the night conference with Jesus. Church, I I want you to imagine if just one person went home today and decided to make a decision, not just to follow Christ, but a commitment to live the rest of their life for him. I want you to imagine that person making changes in their home, not because of what they're doing, but because of what God's doing in them. That's why the changes are happening. They're more loving, they're more respectful. The rest of the family begins to see a change in them 
right? And, and, and at work, their boss doesn't seem to see them upset or depressed or anxious or worried because their life is changing because they've committed themselves to following Jesus. And so things are just happening in their life left and right. Doesn't mean it's good. Still get in car accidents, still experience disease, still get fatigued and tired because that's just life. But how they respond to those things makes a huge difference. Now imagine as people begin to ask what's happening and the person that we're talking about from this church says, you mean there's something different? Because they don't know, right? It's just the mundane day after day until they realize, no, wait, I am acting differently. Things are changing. And now I know why. And they begin to express and share and have a testimony. Imagine if it's two people here in this church that do that. Three, a whole family, two families. Imagine if the entire church made a decision to follow Christ, to commit themselves to what he is calling them to be. Now imagine this church and central church coming together. And with that kind of fervor and that kind of love, doing something for our community and getting the world ready before Jesus comes home. Would you like that? I'd like to imagine that. That's why Pastor TJ and I got together over a year ago, and I'm not giving up on that dream. And I will be praying for you as a church that you wouldn't settle for just making a decision to call Jesus Lord, Savior, that you would follow him, utterly committed to him, to do what he asks of you. God's calling doesn't end with the decision to believe. It's reborn with a commitment to follow.